I'll be fine, Doc. I'll take care of this myself. Nothing than a couple of beers and a chat with my mates can't right. sort out. It's like, no fucking way you'd put the cast on. Yeah. And that's all the meds are. The meds are the cast that allow you then to do the work to heal. Bingo. In this episode, I speak to Osher Ginsberg, formerly known as Andrew G. Osher is one of Australia's most recognisable media personalities. He has been a guest in the living rooms of Australians for almost two decades. From his work on Channel V in the early 2000s, ladies and gentlemen, Robbie Williams, to several seasons of Australian Idol. It was amazing to it see. Was. It was a terrific show. Our contestants put on some blistering performances. Osher was the first Australian to host live network prime TV in the USA on CBS. Currently, Osher hosts Network 10's The Bachelor, of course, everyone would know him from that, and The Bachelorette and The Bachelor in Paradise. Lots of bachelorness, and ironically, he's not a bachelor. He is no stranger to podcasts. The Osher Ginsberg podcast is in its fourth year with over a million downloads, so no pressure on my end to not fuck it up, basically. Uh, recently, Osher has very publicly revealed his battles with mental illness, particularly OCD, alcohol abuse, and psychosis. The windows had been covered in black plastic for so long, and then there was this tiny little pinprick of light. It had been so long, Todd. It had been like every fucking day for like months and months and months and months of pain and pain and pain and months of just... Here's the way out, here's the way out, here's the way out. Every day, just trying to fight that every fucking day. He's recently written a book, Back After the Break, um, which I've read and it's awesome. He reveals a lot about himself and it's it's dark, it's funny, it's heart-wrenching, but it's also an incredibly real, and we love, we love real above all else, an incredibly real and vulnerable account of, of what it means to live with mental ill health. And he's also kind of turning this into a live show based on this memoir and autobiography, um, speaking to audiences around the country. So Osher and I really geek out on an illness we both share and talk about its effects that it's had on our life in OCD and anxiety. Osher shares his view and his experiences with medication in treating his condition, as well as what it's like managing a few conditions at once, one being a battle with alcohol. Uh, I didn't get given a rose, unfortunately, and I, I did try. You have my word on that. But I was given a very insightful hour of vulnerability from a man who's been through a lot and he lives to tell the tale. There's some moderate trigger warnings around alcohol and drug use, OCD and psychosis, um, so be aware of that. But as always, go slow. Go strong, one moment at a time. I reckon I could age like you. I hope you do. Just don't do it with the hearing aid part, because, yeah, deafness is no fun. You're a trendsetter, though. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. I'm a cyborg, um, because my um, I have enhanced intelligence, because when I... uh, 
was in Indonesia the other week. Uh, it's a small island on the south of the uh, Indonesian archipelago, Bali, I think you pronounce it. Um, I was in the back <laughs> yeah, of a no, scooter, I- and I, yeah, I've never driven a scooter before, and I don't know where I'm going, but Google Maps is telling me through my ears with the helmet on, turn left in 300 metres. Mm, so... So it works. I have enhanced intelligence. <laughs> enhanced cyber. I'm essentially or- a cyborg. I wear, I wear glasses to enhance my vision and hearing aids to enhance my ears. And I don't know. I've, I, I brush. I use a toothbrush to keep my teeth from rotting. So I'm a superhuman. You're like fully enhanced. Yeah, totally. And I've, I've had a courses of antibiotics that have saved my life. You know, I am the, I am the product of science. I, I we've got 45, but there's no way we're going to get through everything in 45. Greatest hits, especially mate. because these chairs fart. So sure, it's the chairs, Mitch. Yeah, sure, it's, the, it's chairs. the chairs. But as we sort of started chatting about before we got into this room, it was eerie reading your book, um, reading your story online to see how similar it was to mine. It was refreshing, to say the least, to see someone in your role talk about what you've been through and the way that you've been through. So first of all, thank you very much. Yeah, my pleasure. For doing that. And I think there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who have benefited from that. Let's say millions. <laughs> Let's go millions. Maybe Let's billions. Let's say millions. So I did want to know... So your parents are European. Yes. Mum is from Lithuania. She was from Dad Lithuania. Dad is from Czech. Czech Republic. It was Czechoslovakia when he lived there. Right. Yes. Um, came to Adelaide. Yep. You were born and raised in Adelaide. Nope. I was born in London. You were born in London. My apologies. It's all right. Getting my chronology correct. No, no, that's okay. Adelaide, Brisbane, Sydney, LA. Oh, yeah, yeah, there's another stop in Adelaide along the way, but yes, essentially that's it. Okay. Yeah. Very good. I, I was quite taken by your uh, your first story of when you knew that you were different, which you recounted as being on a tyre. Yeah, a tyre swing. Yeah, in kindy, I think it in was. In kindy. I think you yeah. said you were five, maybe even oh, earlier, younger, four. about three. Three. Yeah, yeah, three or four. Yeah. And you wound the tyre all the way up, jumped in, and then let the tyre yeah. go. Yeah, looked like fun. Yeah. It wasn't. No. <laughs> And you kind of got off and you were like, wow, that's what it feels like to be out of control. Well, I guess the the reason I wrote about that was because it was the first time that I'd experienced such an enormous lack of control and this extraordinary fear that flooded my body in the face of that lack of control. And what was really frightening was that this horrible feeling, like I could run away from the tire swing, but the feeling was still in my body. Mm. I could leave kindy, but when I thought about it was still there. And that I think that was the most important thing to talk about when you talk about someone like living with anxiety or something like that. You can take away the stimulus. You can take away what it was that initially triggered you. Uh, and the same thing happened, you know, years later when I was uh, in New York on September 11. Um, so I can be back in Sydney and still feel the full effect and the full intense effect of, of those things and like that it's an inescapable feeling mm. that is within your own body so no matter where you go what you do how far you hide under the blankets uh it's there um i did try to douse that fear with uh quite a number of liters of alcohol over the years mm. um worked for a little while but in the end, it stopped working completely. Mm. Well, it stopped working quite a long, quite a long time before I stopped. But it took me a long time to come to acceptance of that. Uh, but yeah, that's that's the most you know. I think that's the most um, pertinent thing to share with people is that it's this feeling inside your body that you're unable to escape from. Um, so it doesn't matter where you go, who you're with, what you do. It's overwhelming, mm. and you can't connect with the people around you that 
love you and, you know, you might even be paying you to do a job uh, because you're trapped by this thing. Yeah, I, I found it really cool how you explained it as you were afraid of being afraid. Yeah, that's a, it's, it's called an anxiety loop. When you feel a fear that's so initially intense that you then become afraid of feeling that, that way again. Yeah. And then you become afraid of being afraid of being afraid and then it just becomes this yeah. you know this thing that just it's unstoppable yeah the word loop is something that's um really triggering for me and something that i've never spoken publicly about and i probably never will because i think some parts of your story you need to keep for yourself until okay. you've fully you know mm-hmm. made your way through it for me i got stuck in a loop and i'm very lucky to be out of it i know you got stuck in a loop as well mm. what was the context surrounding your big red button moment that you describe as the break? I experienced um, episodes of psychosis on and off for about, goodness, and the meds really didn't start kicking in until much later, so probably probably around about nine months, ten months on and off. Um, but, yeah, it started on in February 2014, and uh, like like many things, it's not, it didn't just suddenly like though I did just wake up one day and start having paranoid delusions it was a long long way of getting to that point um and I sailed past a lot of red flags on the way there um I had been doing really well and so my doctor and I decided to go off meds that I'd been on for about 10 years for generalized anxiety disorder but I didn't want to, to admit myself that I wasn't doing very well off meds I um so, so very much wanted to not have to take them. I so very much wanted to not be sick. Why? I don't know. I just didn't. Well, wanna... why don't you want to take meds? I didn't. I didn't want to have to have them. Why? I didn't want to have to have them because, um, when you're on the kind of drugs that I was on, they're very good what they do, but they kind of throw a fire blanket over everything. Sure. And so life. Basically, the treble gets turned down, um, and well, like if you look around us, there's seven different kinds of tactile surfaces you and I can touch. We can touch foam, we can touch metal, we can touch plastic, we can touch cloth, we can touch skin. You know, we can touch carpet. Um, everything starts to feel like blue tack. It's very good at controlling the the thoughts that are incredibly intrusive and are preventing you from connecting with people and doing your job and and just basically getting through your day living. But after a while, when those sorts of things start to get controlled, what you're left with is this, oh, everything kind of feels exactly the same. So that's kind of why. Um, but I didn't want to admit that I, w- I needed to be back on them. And um, life, uh, there was a number of um, stressors that went uh, piled on top of each other. It's, you know, not one thing. It's one plus one plus one. Right. And, um, or kind of more exponential, one times, one times, one times, one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that's all you lose you with one. I can't do maths very well. Uh, it's two times, two times two. That's it. Um, so it, yeah, I, I was getting maybe four or five hours of fitful sleep a night when I woke up. Um, I'd thrashed around so much. It looked like it was laundry day. I'd stripped the bed just from how roughly and, you know, much I was throwing, thrashing around when I slept. Um, it's kind of barking at the walls a bit. Um, I was isolating. I hadn't seen anybody. Um, I was in a really confusing relationship that was on again, off again, like a strobe light. Um, 
my father had gotten quite ill. He was in ICU back in Brisbane. It was, it was a whole lot. Of, I was unemployed. <laughs> mm. <laughs> there was a lot of things. All the legs of the chair were wobbly, right? Yeah. yeah oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of things. So it was really only a matter of time before my brain went, ah, oh, that's enough. Yeah. We're out. Yeah. I, th- I think you described it as like, you literally stuffed the compartment so heavily tight that it was it was eventually going to explode. Um, there was nothing else, you know. There was it was going to happen. You know, yeah. I'm just I'm just so so lucky that uh, at every stage of my my life, as my mental health uh, declined, um, I had acquired a new set of skills to manage. So in 2001, when I was diagnosed with PTSD, I was first taught how to do CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and the very the idea of questioning your thoughts was new to me. And so that was very helpful to already have that up my sleeve by 2010, so 10 years later, when I came to get sober and a lot of the concepts um, in the, um, shall we say, the, the main text of the sobriety fellowship I'm a part of. Uh, it's pretty much basically it's like CBT, but 50 years or 30 years before CBT was before CBT showed up. So I was already familiar with, oh, questioning my thoughts and identifying patterns of behavior. And okay, this is all the thing. I'm aware of this. And so I'd already, I already had those two skills and learning as well. Why am I angry? Uh, I'm angry because that person's being an asshole. Oh, hang on. No, that person's just being and I'm the asshole. Ah, right. And kind of figuring that out through in, in sobriety and doing all the hard work and heavy lifting and kind of understanding that just because it's thought doesn't mean it's true and all that kind of stuff. And so when I got super sick, when the psychosis kicked in, I was really, really lucky that I was able to identify, hang on, every single thing is reminding me of doom. This isn't right. So I was very lucky. And in fact, my mentor told me on the day, so I, I knew enough to call. That's the other thing. I knew to call people. That was the other thing I learned in sobriety is when the shit hits the fan, just get on the phone, get on the phone, call someone. Don't, before you pick up a drink, pick up the phone, call, 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 call. And I remember there was one day, I must've called, I don't know, 20 people in one day. And I knew, to, so I knew to call. I knew I had that skill set of just call people, reach out and call people, tell them what's going on, ask them, check, reality check. Is this happening? Is this really happening? Because my head's telling me it is. Is it happening? I don't give a shit about it if they thought I was crazy or not. You know, I mean, I know it's a tough word for some people to listen to. Um, but uh, he told me, he said, the problem with, you know, people who are experiencing that kind of, you know, let's say people who are experiencing psychosis is they don't realize they're experiencing psychosis because as far as you're concerned, it's real because your brain's telling you it's real. And you, if you've never had cause to question reality before, why would you ever do so? And so that's, you know, I remember d- definitely sitting across the, a couple of days later, I finally made it to my psychologist. And I remember sitting across the office from him and he's telling me I'm experiencing paranoid delusions. And my first thought is, oh shit, you're in on it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> You know, and I can so understand how people get in a lot of trouble when they get involuntarily committed, and and you know, you know, I get it, I get it. If you if you've never questioned your thoughts, if you've never questioned the your what your brain does and how your brain interprets reality, why would you think that is anything wrong with you? Everything else is weird, of course. And I think people underestimate a word that you said that um, is a word. I personally rally around and hard on my sleeve is rallying around more than any other word, which is real. No one knows how real things feel inside the body of someone or anyone in general, but particularly someone facing a mental health challenge. Yeah. 
Um, the other night I was at a dinner and this lady was telling me about how her, her daughter was, she couldn't go to sleep at night. She was in her bedroom. That got more and more to the point where like she wouldn't sleep until 3am because there was monsters in her room, blah, blah, blah. And to the point where the mum had to lock her daughter outside the house because she's like, I, I cannot have you in here. You are doing my head in. And they went to the doctor the next day and the doctor said, you can't underestimate how, how intense this is feeling for her inside her own mm. body and that you know someone who who is having a hallucination it's audibly measurable like on a, on a scan and you know so it is someone's reality that they are reacting to which um as you say is the only thing they have to make meaning from mm. and so you know you tell me what's crazy. You know, if all the information in your navigation compass is telling you that that's north and someone else is like bro that's south you're like well fuck <laughs> and yeah. that is a very very scary place to it's, be. it's very frightening to realize that your ability to perceive the reality that you share with everyone else i mean surely you know that you know we could say that wall's blue all right i could say that wall's blue you could say that wall's blue and we've agreed that this shade is blue but as far as i know you see that as what i see purple is or you see that what i see red is yeah. as far as i know you know, I can't tell. Uh, and that's a really tricky thing. I've got a lot of admiration for the psychiatrists that I worked with over the years that helped me get better and helped me stay better. Um, it's really tricky because you can't do a blood test to diagnose this stuff. Mm. You've got to completely rely on self-reported experiences. And oh, I was very lucky. I was really lucky because I had a psychiatrist that was willing to question his initial hypothesis. And that was really lucky because a lot of the time psychiatrists can... You know, in my experience of hearing others, go, nope, that's it. I'm the smart one. I went to uni. This is what you got. This is the treatment. And then the person says, I'm not getting better. Well, but that's what you've got. So we'll up the dose. It's like, well, six months later, I'm still not getting better. Well, that's what you've got. We'll up the dose. It's like, fuck, man. I don't know. <laughs> so I was really lucky that yeah. my guy was like, mate, it should be working. The drugs yeah. are what you want should be working. Maybe it's something else. And then we, you know, he handed me off to another doctor back here in Sydney. And, you know, that doctor and I, we transitioned off the regime that I was on, which was two different kinds of antipsychotics and an SSRI and a amino ketone, I think it was. I was on a lot of drugs. And um, we transitioned off that stuff and onto another one. And what do you know? I started to get better. <laughs> I was really lucky that those guys had, uh, mm. you know, were prepared to go, maybe it isn't what we thought it was. Mm. Uh, which, um, you know, I, I, I really advocate if you... Yeah, unless you're really, really sick, and I, I totally understand. There are some people who are who got, who got a really shitty hand, and they got dealt a really, really rough hand, and they got to be on a lot of drugs to function, and functioning great, and functioning fine in society, and no one need know. But like I said, you know, the effects of the medication can suck. Um, so I'm very lucky. I am very well aware, very lucky that I was able to uh, heal. Because uh, there's some people that aren't in that situation. Mm -hmm. So I'm definitely aware of that. I feel medication is a very individual thing. And to your point, if you don't need it, don't do it. But if you do need it, it's okay. And I think a lot of people put it off for a long time thinking that I'm less of a person because of yeah. it or I'm, or I'm weak. But, you know, if, if you were diabetic and the doctor said you need insulin, you wouldn't yeah. blink. Um, I'm not, not even that. If you'd broken your arm right. and you've got, you know, your, what's that, tibia, femur? I don't know. Something in the forearm. Yeah, if your humerus is sticking out <laughs> like that, right, and the doctor goes, all right, I'm going to put a cast on it. Hey, hold on, buddy. 
I don't like the way that's going to look. Don't if be people, treating me. If people feel find out that I'm wearing a cast to help me heal, they're going to make me feel weird at work. I'll be fine, Doc. I'll take care of this myself. Nothing than a couple of beers and a chat with my mates can't right. sort it out. It's like, no fucking way you'd put the cast on. Yeah. And that's all the meds are. The meds yeah. are the cast that allow you then to do the work to heal. Bingo. That's, that's what it is. I, I want to make sure that point lands with everyone <laughs> that – Medication isn't the answer. It's it's the um, training wheels or the 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 guardrails that that allow you to go and then lift the weights. Yeah, it's the back brace. It's the backboard to the basketball net. It is absolutely because yeah. that that's it, it. It it releases the grip of the fist just a little bit so you can just get a couple of thoughts in there. And it takes a while. That's yeah. the other thing. It takes a while. It does, but. Uh, you know, I, I, I know because I, I refused. I was first offered meds in 1999 and I refused them because I didn't want to be a guy on meds. Like, and when I finally did start taking meds in 2007, I was just, I can't believe I wasted 10 years. Mm. Can't believe it. I, I wasted at least nearly 10 years of my life being so just gritting my teeth right. and trying to drink it better. <laughs> I relate to that. Uh, I, I went 26 years. I probably should have been on medication when I was 13. Um, and now I am I am on Zoloft, which is an SSRI, and I'm on a relatively low dose, um, and I use it just to um, allow me to have some f- foothold to, to continue to do the work. Yeah. And as you point to, um, there is no way around it. There is work. Yeah. Um, and often where the pain is is where a, a flag to this is where you need to go. Yeah. Uh, Susan David, who's an extraordinary psychologist, she uh, has written a book called Emotional Agility, which is brilliant. And I was very, very lucky to, to have her on my podcast the other day. Um, I guess her overall message is um, uncomfortable feelings are the price of admission to a meaningful life. So being with uncomfortable feelings is, is a part of life. And her, when it comes to doing the work, um, she referred to a, a story she used to read her kids called We're Going on a Bear Hunt. I don't know if you know it, but no. uh, we're going on a bear hunt. Oh, there's some forest. Can't go over it. We can't go under it. We can't go around it. We have to go through it. Through. And that's what she'd say. She says, it's like that book. Going on a bear hunt, there's no way. And I understand a lot of people, they feel this horrible feelings in their body and they don't know how to yell at people who who love them and they just want a pill to make it better. That's not how it works. There is a pill to make it better, but you'll be essentially equal to the beanbag in the corner because that's all you'll be capable of. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you can sedate it, Mm. but then what's life? What's life? Mm. So, And that brings us to pretty much the main learning that has... I would say if there was a perspective that I adopt on a daily basis that has got me from bad to good, mm. it is learn to see the grey in life. Um, as someone who uh, has suffered from anxiety and OCD, a lot of that is patterns in your head that is mitigating or avoiding pain because your experience with pain is so bad that you devise um, algorithms to bypass it. Mm-hmm. And so... I thought that that was just how everyone thought in these like almost binary computer code um, fashion, which, by the way, has served me incredibly well to do in my career, but not in my personal life. True. And it wasn't until I realized that life is circular, not square, and that it, it, everything, whether it's choosing chicken or sushi for lunch, you know, it can be chicken with a side of rice. I was like, no, it is always or not and. When I replaced or with and in my vocabulary, um, my life got immeasurably better. And I think I bring this grey topic into our discussion now because 
it applies to everything, including medication, which is, you know, there's probably two sides to a spectrum. Somewhere in there might be your thing and no one can say or build a rule to what that is. Mm. You just have to go find it. Yeah. I mean, yet it would, it, at its point, drug companies make a, make a, make drugs in, you know, kind of blanket dosage sizes of five milligram increments to deal with a kind of blanket, you know, amount of people that could fall beneath that clinically effective dose. But wouldn't it be an interesting thing if you could present and some extraordinary algorithm would go like, oh, yeah, all right, we know what Mitch needs. There's the pill. Yeah. Yeah. It's got a little bit of this and a little bit of that. In the absence of that, think grey. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. When that comes along, Osher and I will be like, well, we can be as OCD as we fucking like now. Um, By the way, funny story. I picked up your book and um, I noticed that the page was bent. And so I went to put it back and get another one. And I was like, no. I must get the not perfect one for <laughs> yeah. us to, to for us to have the right conversation. Yeah, Here cool. comes my superstition just rolling in oh, on right on time. Yeah, isn't that fascinating? So, talk to me if you can a little bit about and nothing that is too far. That's obviously, right. um, how September 11 affected you because you were way closer to it than people thought. Uh, well, I wasn't I wasn't at Ground Zero, but right. I was on the island of Manhattan. Yeah, and you know when we got back, we all. Um, we're, I don't know, we're a couple of k's away from Ground Zero, but we're definitely there. We're in the middle of it all. Mm. Um, everything kind of smelt like fire for a long time, and we all came back coughing up black stuff for a couple of weeks. Um, and uh, we were physically safe on the day, but it was utterly, utterly terrifying to feel so uh, completely out of control. And, you know, it's interesting because I was on a, a crew of four people, and other people I was with were totally fine. And for some reason, the way it affected me was uh, really, really awful. And I felt a great deal of shame about that. Mm. You know, I remember going to see the shrink, going like, I don't feel like I belong here. I'm perfectly safe. You know, just thousands of people lost their, lost their lives. And, you know, you know, there's, there's people I know who lost friends. And, you know, it's really, you know, I don't deserve to feel this way. <laughs> he got up for the shrink I was seeing at the time. He got up from his chair, his creaky old leather chair. And uh, he wandered over to the bookshelf behind me. They picked up the DSM four, which is uh, it's been uh, superseded now by the DSM five, but um, it's basically the the definition manual of the, the definition <laughs> the definition of uh, of psychiatric illnesses. And he went like that, and he goes, "Read that," and he made me read out the diagnosis for the, or the presentations for PTSD, and it was as if they just copied out my life. And he goes, mm. "Mate, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you got hurt, if you're physically harmed or not. You've got it." And um, I had to accept that. I had to accept that. You know, this is a reaction that my my body was was doing and my brain was doing. Mm. Um, and that acceptance is is a thing that has definitely played a a, a, a thing a role in, in my life. As certainly as far as feeling any better. Um, uh, certainly around around drinking, having to just be an acceptance that mm, I just can't can't drink like other people. Just can't do it. Um, nope. I have to accept that I. If I have a drink, I'll have a thousand, and that's it. So don't have a drink, and that's yeah. that's it. All those ads on the sides of the buses, all those TV commercials, all those parties in the videos, in the music videos, not for me. I have to say no to them, and that's fine. Now it's, it's actually really quite easily, and I'm actually grateful for it. Um, but yeah, I had to. I had to also be an acceptance that I needed, um, because the thing about 
alcoholism is uh, is uh, a certain treatment protocol. It's a step based protocol, twelve steps. People might have heard of it. Um, the first step is to accept that you know that you've got this, and it's going to take something bigger than you to get it better. And I remember my doctor at the time; he was giving me this antipsychotic to take only when I needed it, and I was. I was performing a trick of the mentally ill as old as psychiatry itself. Like, he told me to take this antipsychotic only when I need it. So therefore, if I don't take it, I don't need it. So therefore, I don't have psychosis. I did, and I really needed the drug. And the next time I saw him, he got really mad at me. He's like, what are you doing? You have to accept that you've got this, and you have to accept that it's bigger than you, and you're going to need something bigger than you to make it any better. And... Once he put it in that language, the language that I definitely remembered and understood from, you know, getting sober, I was like, well, okay, then I better do it. And um, what do you know? I started taking the drugs and I started feeling better. Mm. But I didn't want it. Nobody wants psychosis. Nobody wants to be having paranoid delusions. Nobody wants to have their own worst enemy inside their own body. Nobody wants that. No. It was really shit, yeah. <laughs> but, but I had to had be an acceptance of it, and it's the same thing around triggers. You know, it's the same thing about the things that trigger me, and and you know they still trigger me. And though I live life off medication at the moment, and I have to do a lot of heavy lifting on some days to make sure I get through the day. Um, you know, being an acceptance is a massive part of it. It's huge, isn't Just, it? Okay, that's how this is. I and a big part of it is, um, which is something I learned in uh, from the ethos of um, acceptance commitment therapy is I don't have to like it. But I, am a, I can be with it. I can tolerate. Yeah, it. I can. I can be with this feeling. Right. It's, it's uncomfortable. Yes, it's uncomfortable. Sure, it's uncomfortable. But I, I have space for it. I have room for it, and I can make room for it and allow it to be there, rather than running from it. Because as as you mentioned before, and this is what it's interesting. Another Susan David conversation she and I had was, um, she told me a lot about uh, fusion and why when we run from the fears, all we really do then is multiply them. It might feel like we're doing the right thing and counterintuitive to that is you actually have to push into it and something i definitely learned with um exposure therapy which was understandably you can Tough. yeah you can watch both their body languages too. change <laughs> um, like, oh fuck it's uh it seems like the most are you fucking kidding me you want me to do fucking what yeah idea at the time um but it is ultimately it's the thing that has helped me mm. uh greatly because uh, it is, it's fucking uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable. But it's on the other side of that fear is where the freedom is. Amen. And- Amen. And I think the anxiety or distress, whatever fucking term you want to say, is r- really just an avoidance of wanting to be with what's real. And coming back to that word. Yeah. Um, I have something in my life, in my body, in a hypothetical future situation that... I don't want to accept and acceptance is, is is like drilling through layers of cement. It it literally melts away our defenses because um, there's nothing to defend against acceptance, true acceptance. And, and it's often our defenses, which are actually the mental illness in itself. And so I'm a, I'm a big believer that um, being where you are and being able to see a thought and be and say the word maybe is a really healthy sign of a of a healthy brain. You know, exposure works because of the the neuroscience of what fires together wires together. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if you are avoiding something, your brain is reaffirming to itself, oh shit, that is dangerous. Versus if if you can tolerate pain and know that whatever I'm scared of and by the way, I really want to make it clear that 
fears, anxiety, trauma, and the traditional definition are, you know, bombs, rapes, things like that. But on a day-to-day basis, we experience trauma and fears that are, to some people, microscopic, that toxically eat away at people over time in an accumulated fashion, which can cause severe distress to people. And it's not wanting to be present with that feeling and and to genuinely feel it that actually does more harm than what it would be like to accept. And so, um, the be- yeah, one of the best things I've ever done is is be able to look at a thought that are usually sticky and be like, hmm. like, hmm, is the best response I've ever had to a thought or when it's like, but maybe, maybe that's true. I'm just going to keep cooking this bag bowl right now and, I'll see you later. And then it'll come back and back and maybe, maybe, maybe. That's powerful stuff to be able to get to that point. Um, I remember when I was super sick, I remember just begging my brain or begging whatever power in the universe just to allow me to have acceptance because the switch in my brain that would have allowed that to happen was stuck to off. Yeah. And there was, you could present to me a long list of facts and an entire, you know, you could bring 17 people in the room that would tell me that's not going to happen and it wouldn't have worked And because this part of my brain that was could accept a rational explanation had stopped working. Yep. And um, it was through the medication and that, that kind of loosened that switch to now be able to find Flick the back. Yeah. on position and every yeah. now and again and then slowly, slowly and now I'm able to kind of keep it more or less over there and with the work now I can click it back if I need to. Mm. It does take work, but I can do it. And again, it's being an acceptance. Like, that's pretty much what I've the best I can hope for between now and when I check out. Um, but yeah. Because um, I don't think I'm ever going to have a brain that I don't, wants that, you know, neural pathways there and it sits there. And, um, you know, I'm just going to have to live with it. That's what it is. I mean, but like you said, you know, what is it? What else does it give me? It gives me, you know, a, a way of living life now that involves very deliberate action, purpose, um, physical activity, deliberate connection mm. with, you know, I'll go out of my way to connect with my wife and kid. I'll go out of my way to connect with my friends. I'll go out of my way to, try, you know, approach things with purpose rather than just kind of automatoning through life, mm. you know just wandering around just following the same pattern same train same tv show same dinner every single day um i I get because of what i have to do every day i get to live this life that's um it feels a lot more deliberate and i feel a lot more in control and you know going back to our gray philosophy i love the word gray flag gray flag is whenever i'm talking to absolute i gray flag myself to be like but that is never always true. And to what you just said is, yeah, this is who you are, but you've existed on a spectrum Mm. and you've proven that your brain's been plastic. It has changed its form and you have made a switch that was stuck, unstick itself, and you've proven that you can do it and you're here leading an amazing life and with work, that switch remembers and keeps going back to that place. Yeah. yeah. That that's that's the thing. It does it does yeah. it does take work. And uh yeah. And and that's it though. And here we it, are. And because you've got to be willing to do it. You've got to be willing to do the work. Mm. But I like to sh- I like to sub out the letter E for the letter O from I've got to do the work, but I get to do the work. Mm. I get to do it. I get to do this thing that keeps me present, that keeps me 
grounded that keeps me mindful um that hopefully because if if i didn't do that stuff i would just be stuck in my phone or stuck on my computer just totally isolating from the world and not leaving the house mm-hmm. okay and i know if i do that i don't, I don't end up in a very healthy place but at, for a long time that was my coping strategy because for the, the further I kept the frightening thoughts, the better I thought life was. But all that was happening is those things were just doubling in size. Delaying. Every time yeah. I, I escaped, that would just double in size behind me. The yeah. monster would be bigger every time I look back. That's the thing. And um, you've just briefly mentioned a couple of times so far that alcohol and pain go hand in hand because really it's just the way to have a break and probably not a healthy way. Mm. But what you're trying to do is offer some relief. And I think a lot of people see uh, others, people they love abusing substances, and they're like, you know, it's your fucking fault and you're fucking your life up. And and that is true. There's a, there's a lot of accountability on that person to, to, to get themselves better. That said, grey flag, um, they're not doing it because they just want to fuck their life up. It's not like they woke up one day and they're like, I want to get drunk today and drown out all types of feelings because that. Um they're fucking hurting a lot. And in the absence of anyone else telling them a better solution, this is what they've come up with. Now, what we've seen through models like AA and other such things is when you connect with another person that gets it, shit changes. It just does. Mm -hmm. When you have a framework to be able to go back to, like an AA, shit changes. It just does. What has it been for you that has enabled you to say the bottle helped I let go of the judgment of myself for using that because I understand why I did, but there is a better path forward. Um, I don't know if I'd necessarily, you know, put it like that okay. around my drinking. For me, alcohol wasn't the problem. Alcohol was the solution. Yeah. Alcohol was, and I like to think about it like this, like what would we, let's just say alcohol was something you had to get from the pharmacy. What would we as a society say about a doctor going, okay, well, I would recommend using this, self-administer the dose, go get as much as you want, uh, and get it in all different kinds of flavors, whatever you t- whatever tickles you fancy. Um, go to town. Whenever you're feeling bad, go for it. Um, people, we go, hey, hang on a second. No, 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 that's, that should be given under supervision, that kind of sedative. Uh, no, hold your fire. Um, but yeah, that's what we do. It's a super acceptable, socially okay, socially acceptable, super available, uh, affordable sedative. Um, that all elements of society over the age of 18 have free and easy access to. Um, Which is fucking crazy when you think about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The the illness burden of alcohol on our society, I don't know if I want to talk about it. but mm, Particularly for, Australia, right? For me, it was, you know, that's just how I got by managing it. And uh, eventually the dosage that I need, like any drug, the dosage that I needed to feel anywhere close to normal just became so out of hand that I could clearly see where it was heading. And I was very lucky. It was like I was asleep on the, at the wheel and woke up just before the semi hit me and I was able to pull out. I was very, very lucky. What to, woke you up? Uh, I was just like one more day where I woke up after, you know, another night on my knees, you know, in my own spew, just after having humiliated people that love me and, you know, myself and, you know, just destroying relationships of people who are trying to care for me and be close to me, just... I just couldn't do it again because it was starting to happen every single time. When I say starting, was happening 
every single time and there was nothing that was changing. I could tell you exactly how the day was going to go. I was like just on this repetitive, repetitive course of action that I was unable to do anything about. Um, and that, you know, I was powerless over it. I was powerless over it. And uh, the only thing I could do was to not pick up the first one that day. That was March 13th, 2010. And uh, thankfully, with a lot of help, I've managed to not do so since. Um, Congratulations, well, Willow. That's a big feat. Thanks, man. I just yeah. Honestly, it's just one day at a time. Sometimes it's just an hour at a time. Yep. I ain't going to lie. Yep. But I'm really lucky that when I got, when I got super sick, I got... I was uh, nearly four years in, so wow. I knew the w- only way to make this even worse would be to start drinking. Yeah, but how <laughs> awesome that you had the in your psychosis, you had the yeah. rational brain to yeah. say, "This will fuck it up beyond yeah. repair." That's well, I, awesome. I also had a you know I have a management strategies around alcohol and that. Like, I'm not going to drink it, but I get exhausted looking at a minibar all day when I'm in a hotel room. Sure. So when I check in, like, I'm never going to touch it, but yeah. it's just like, it's, it's, it's like if you've ever walked a puppy, it's like constantly having to go, come, come on, come here, yeah. come here, <laughs> come here, come here. You can't get anything done because yeah. you constantly say, come here, come here, come here, because I'm constantly telling my brain, no, I don't do that anymore. Do not do that anymore. Don't do that. So I just, when I check in a hotel, it's just like, can you just send someone up and get all the booze out of the room, mm-hmm. please? Yeah. yeah. It's really easy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it totally. makes it like, I'm not gonna, like I said, I'm not going to touch it. I just get exhausted constantly having to, to, to manage those thoughts. And over time, uh, as you say, they're there every day. They're going to happen. But yeah. they do get a little easier. Yeah, it's time. way easier yeah, yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. It's way yeah. easier now because all I have to do now is think about what, what happens if I start drinking. Right. And, you know. We don't want that. No, no, no. Because no. we have a thing uh, We have a thing in our brain. Uh, it's called hedonic recall. We only remember the, you know, the amazing time. Like... Um, how was your trip to Thailand? Oh, it was amazing. So good. You know, are you going to mention the fact that you got food poisoning and shat through the eye of a needle and, you know, your husband was on the toilet with his face in the sink while you were in the bathtub, both of you exploding from both ends for three straight days, <laughs> waiting for your lost luggage How's to show image? up? image? You know, waiting for your lost luggage to show up? No. No. You'll, you'll only talk about the fantastic temple that you visited or the beautiful right. photo on the beach. All right. Cause, and you will only remember that. I mean, otherwise, people would never have a second kid. They would, yeah. never, they would remember the pain of the first one. You know, not that I've ever delivered a baby. Nor will I ever deliver a baby. Yeah. But, well, you know. I've, I've you know had some had some bad food, which has made me feel like I've delivered a baby, and I can empathise. Well, <laughs> I I would never ever ever be brave enough to try and compare bad food to childbirth, no, yeah. mate. But you that. are on your own <laughs> over there. You are on your no, own. That was uh, that was a good run. Uh, I said that to my mum once, and she's like, "You're fucking delusional." I'm like. Yeah, probably. in the words of Robin Williams, <laughs> unless you've tried to squeeze a watermelon out through a hole yeah. the size of a lemon, you don't know what it is. <laughs> no, I, uh, I, I feel very grateful and and yes, that I don't have to go through that, and I admire <laughs> the women who do. But no, I, I take your point. It is a day by day, sometimes an hour by hour. Yeah, I have been there, and we'll probably go there again. And I think people who are there feel guilt because they're like, I should be able to human better than this. Um, yeah. As opposed to, this just is. And there's a fuck ton of people going through a similar thing. I just don't know about them. And it's voices like yours that yeah. actually enable you to go, oh, yeah. And that is sometimes more freeing than the problem needing to go away, is just feeling recognized and part of something more than just what's in your head. Yeah, I, I think for a long time, I mean, my ego plays a big role in my story. And for a long time, I'd like to think I was this special snowflake. And no one knew what it was like to be me. And then I remember, 
hearing this woman speak once and talking about her relationship with alcohol and she was saying you know this is how i am around strangers this is how you know i am to my my family this is how i am to you know when i'm at work this is what i'm like when i'm trying to be in a relationship this is what i'm like when i try to do my groceries and i was like my goodness you're telling my story how do you know what it is to be me and you're a 64 year old woman from texas was that the changing point for you? Was this the kind of conversation definitely you one of them? To? Yeah, it was definitely one of them. It was definitely you know hearing. Oh right, so I'm not this super special, one of a kind, little delicate, you know, a Faberge egg. I'm just a run of the mill person experiencing a really kind of very standard set of symptoms. And that was a positive thing. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Because I can see that other people who felt exactly the same way as me had gotten better. And I didn't know how to get better. Or my very best idea is that the smartest things that I could... I'd like to think... that Even though I didn't do very well in high school, I'd like to think that I'm not an unintelligent person. The smartest ideas that I could possibly have had ended me up divorced, lost my house, unemployed, and, you know, sitting in this bloody meeting. I'm thinking, well, this is the best that I've got. This is the cleverest that I could possibly be has ended me up here. So clearly might be time for some fresh ideas around this place and um it was the same with my mental health it was the same as like the smartest ideas that i had had gotten me to that point so i don't know what to do next i better shut up and listen to someone that does and so it was by feeling i guess connected and yeah. seeing your story and someone else which which was the big turning point for you and right? then that that person had then got a lot better Right. And that they, oh, wow, they have a life now. They have a partner. They have a job. They have a house. They have money in the bank again. And oh. so it was like, if, if they can, I can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't know how to do it yet, but they do. So I'm just going to have to shut up and listen. And what was that process like for you? Is, just got to do the work, man. How did you, you find the work? Uh, what the work was that you needed to do? Nobody likes to look back in their life and look back at all the horrible times that they were horrible to other people and admit, oh, God, I was horrible. And then go and find those people and say... I was horrible. Uh, I'm really sorry that I hurt. I, mean, I tended not to use the word sorry. Like I, I, this is how I think it might have made you feel, and I feel really bad about that. And I, I want you to know that I want to live the rest of my life not ever doing that again. And you know, tracking those people down and trying to clean up the mess that you made. It's really important. Did you approach your your treatment or getting better once you felt this catharsis from being understood by someone else and started your journey? Did you treat the anxiety first or the alcohol first? Well. I had been managing my anxiety with alcohol, um, and so what happened then is I stopped drinking and essentially had come off my meds because the sedative was gone, um, and then I, everything just went bad. Um, but I didn't do the work that is required when you stop drinking uh, until it was, you know, certainly uh, very, I'd, you know, a relationship had had to torpedo and you know had to you know, have some pretty rough times professionally and, and financially um, for me to go, okay, I better do the work. <laughs> and then um, under the guidance of a very kind man um, who showed me what to do, I, you know, just kind of followed in his footsteps. And uh, A psychologist or a sponsor? Or? Uh, oh, let's call him a mentor. Okay. Um, he showed me how to do it and uh, – I just kind of did the work. Just shut up and, and did the work. And mm-hmm. uh, like anything, it's when the fear of change becomes less than the pain of staying the same, that's when we change. And it was the same with my mental health. It was the same when I was getting really sick and I was searching many times a day, searching for a permanent solution to uh, what I didn't realize was a temporary problem. And it was just so damn painful and so horrible. I just 
I was no longer afraid of taking the drugs. I was no longer afraid of doing the treatment. I was no longer afraid of admitting that you I had surrendered. this thing. Yeah. I was like, I don't care. I Whatever do not takes. care what people call me, what people think of me. I do not fucking care. I just don't want to feel this physical pain in my body for another minute. Because it's, I don't think people understand that. It's extraordinary physical pain. It's extraordinary mm. mental pain. Just anguish and your whole body hurts. And it's just inescapable. You can't run away from it. You can't go to another room. You can't go for a swim. You can't, you know, you can't eat anything that makes it change. And it's awful. And there's nowhere to escape. And... Yeah, so when it was that bad, I was like, I don't give a fuck. You take, I'll take whatever drugs you tell me. I'll do whatever you tell me. Just make this stop, please. And it's sometimes it's sometimes we do need to get to that point <laughs> yeah. where we're at rock bottom, where there is no ego to prevent us from getting better. It's just no. fucking shredded away from us. Yeah. And you're so raw that you're just like, do whatever you need to do. Yeah. Or I will do whatever I need to do to be less of a victim state, but... Yeah, it's a real blessing where you're like, you know what, call me fucking crazy, call me weak, call me whatever you want, so long as I don't feel like this. Yeah, well, I was lucky that I had, uh, at least I had, again, the awareness to know that something was wrong. Mm -hmm. I was very, very lucky. Very, very lucky to know that something was wrong. And that what I was experiencing, even though it felt 100% real, uh, wasn't. So, I was very fortunate. We... It's, it, it is by accident, but by beautiful, universal happenings that um, your story kind of parallels with mine and, and kind of my philosophy, Heart on My Sleeves philosophy, which is that ultimately we need to be authentic and face what we're going through. Um, that often comes by relating to someone else that has been through something similar to us so that we can let go of our defenses and eventually treat the wound instead of just band-aiding. And that then, acting from a place of acceptance, um, enables us to find the help and the people and because it often is people um, almost every time um, that come into our life and, and show us the way so that we can let go of that old narrative that's just been playing in our head for forever and keeping us cemented in a way of being um, and also a way of what we see is the only way forward to then carve out, hey, I'm actually an editable character in this story yeah. and that my path can be a choice. Part of that for you has been meeting your wife. And I wanted to quote something that she said, which really stuck with me. So uh, you guys met on The Bachelor. Yeah, um, we did. When we you met at work. Yeah. When you were filming, which is awesome. And so she was doing your makeup, right? She was. Was it love at first sight? Um, I was so sick when I met her. I was just, well, it was, I want to be around you at first sight. It was, I, I didn't, I'd never dated in sobriety. I had never fell in love in sobriety. I didn't know what those emotions so were So it was very like. foreign. It was so, so strange. Yeah. Um, it's, it's my first relationship as a sober man, uh, getting, first time getting into a relationship as a sober man. And um, so what I thought love was, uh, was actually obsession. Mm-hmm. So I've had to basically learn how to have an, a, a, a healthy relationship for the first time. And um, I've had a lot of guidance around that. I'm really grateful for that. And uh, Audrey's uh, patience. And I, I kind of really follow her leader in the many ways. Um, her patience and compassion around that has been um, the main reason that it's worked. 
And, and I, I will just quote what she said. So she said, I found it difficult to reconcile uh, this other Osher with the Osher that I loved as he behaved in ways that my Osher wouldn't. Sometimes the other Osher said or did things that hurt me deeply or made me feel like our relationship wasn't enough to make him happy. When that happened, I did my very best to hold on to the Osher I fell in love with and not react with anger or pain as my very own insecurities were being triggered by his behavior. I had to remember his actions were being driven by something else, his anxiety, his fears and his trauma. I took that so poignantly as well as she went on to say, I surprisingly found that I too am not alone in my experience supporting a partner bat- battling mental illness. So often the supporter story goes unrecognized yeah. and underplayed and it's sort of all focused on the experiencer and of course, duly so, but what a journey that they go through yeah, and a role they play and, and pain and and anguish they carry to see someone that they love almost kind of floundering around helpless at times. How's she been dealing with it and how, how important is it that she's around? Oh, I wouldn't be alive were it not for her. No doubt. It's pretty powerful. Oh, it's absolutely true. Yeah. 100% true. Uh, because um, I remember my old, my, old, my old doctor used to teach me that, you know, it's really important to have um, – something something to do uh, someone to live for and um, you know those two things are uh, something to do with purpose and something to, and someone to live for and you know, having her in my life was you know just the most inc- incredible thing that this this woman was able to see me and my sick brain as two separate people two separate things and to be able to connect um, with her and and for some reason, I don't know how the hell she did it, but she managed to, she managed to burst through the the the, the, the darkness of of the psychosis, and and she was the first person to be able to communicate to that switch that was shut off. She was the first person to flick it back, to allow me to accept for just a nanosecond that it could be another way from what I was convinced that was going to happen. Um, that's not the reason that I married her I married her because she's the kindest most wonderful human I've ever known and she's smart and funny and beautiful with Disney princess eyes Uh, but she also happened to be this person that had so much love and compassion and kindness to be there and be able to speak to me even though I was swirling in this vortex of of paranoid delusion she was able to speak to me behind all that Mm. and um I was really, really lucky uh, to have her. And honestly, the amount of people that have come out and that was from an article that Audrey wrote, um, we, did a, we did a gig at the um, Brisbane Writers Festival after the launch of the book. And um, after you do a gig, there's a Writers Festival, long table, you sign books. There was a line for people to come and say hello to me, but the line to meet Audrey, she's just standing on the side, the line to meet Audrey was, twice as long because people just so resonated with the fact that I find that a lot of people are getting the book and, and giving it to you know someone who's caring for someone or mm. um, someone who's struggling giving it to their partner yeah yeah. Really, yeah really important role yeah the role of the carer yeah. is, is, is important it's so important because yeah. it gives the person who's ill someone to get better for it's not just you you know it gives that person someone to get better for mm. and um, that for me was you know really powerful and uh, I'm really glad I did because 
my life with Audrey and Georgia is, is bloody wonderful. And I'm really, really fucking happy that you have that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, and I haven't known you for long, but um, I feel like you deserve it. So, um, <laughs> Thanks, man. As someone who's had social anxiety, anxiety in general, you talk about how you find a sense of control being in the spotlight, yeah. which is super paradoxical in some ways. I know. Um, how have you managed that, you know, you were going through serious complex mental illness and you were live on one of the highest rating shows of all time <laughs> like how did you you know people talk about the the, the mask with Instagram like yeah. your mask was the fucking biggest mask that ever oh, existed I wasn't, it wasn't a mask at all it was just this state of um, you know everything was prescribed and, and certainly when you go on live television and then later on when, when I was really sick which was the second season of Bachelor and then the third season of Batch and the first season of Bachelorette um, I, uh, uh, you know, you're in this space where it's all very choreographed and, uh, I'll walk here, I'll say these words, that camera moves there, that camera's got there, this lighting person's got this, the audio guy's got that, my producer's here, da 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 everything is very orchestrated and choreographed and for those brief seconds, minute, three, five minutes, everything that I think is going to happen will happen and it's just, oh. I can finally, let the reins go. Finally, order. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> order. <laughs> Back to chaos. Back to chaos. The moment it's moment it's over. Back to chaos. But yeah, it's really in those moments of focus that I, I'm I'm very grateful for. So to test that logic, we don't want to get too absolute about it, but what about public speaking, which is kind of less scripted, less team of people, would you still get yeah. nervous public speaking? No, never. Never ever. No, and I approach it very differently these days. I don't, I don't seek out stage time like I used to. Like it was a, you know, bored in a small Ziploc bag from a dodgy biker in the back alley. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's something that I, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that I can do, and I enjoy doing it. I enjoy connecting with people on that level, and uh, I enjoy being able to communicate to people effectively on that level. And it's, it's, I, I enjoy it very much. Um, no, public speaking is. Uh, something I've, I don't know, I've always enjoyed. There you I'm, go, I'm people. Lucky. Someone who has panic, anxiety, OCD, who can public speak. Yeah. He is a cyborg. Well, it's, it's, all, it's all in preparation. <laughs> but it's all in preparation. It's all in how much you prepare. And I prepare. I've got this keynote that I've got to do tonight. Um, and I wrote it two days ago. You know, and I, and I, I rewrote it three days before that, you know, and, and, and you know, that's just how I do. Yeah. Uh, so by the time that I get on the stage I've already visualised it I've already done it I've already read it 17 times or whatever and so by the time when I'm standing up there tonight at this big ball that I'm doing um, you know it's just another time that I've done it it's not the first time I've done it sure so so if you were to give us uh, three things that you do now super tactically um, to keep healthy Mm. what would they be I'm assuming it's exercise is one (laughs) because he's been on the front cover of Men's Health Ladies check it out that was uh, that was that was a yeah, that was a very big, uh, very big thing for me. Looking um, fit, man. You're well, putting us to shame. I worked We can't hard. compete out here with, I, I, with I front look covers like, I don't like look that. that. I don't look like that right now, I can tell you. Um, but uh, I still work out every single day. Awesome. Um, I would say the, the the biggest thing you can do, whether you're having an episode of uh, mental ill health or you're just wanting to care for your mental health, um, is sleep. Prioritizing sleep is the number one. Get Amen. eight hours. Get eight hours. It's the best drug on this planet, and I can say that. And um, <laughs> there, it is uh, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, exercise is 
an incredible intervention when it comes to altering your mood. Unless you're really ill, um, your body will release certain hormones into your brain that will shift your mood in a very positive fashion. Dopamine, serotonin, and uh, endorphins, and norepinephrine will all get released, particularly if you do um, uh, compound resistance movements, uh, squats, deadlifts. Um, that can, now that I'm healthier, that can knock anxiety out for my day, um, and that's really, really powerful. Eating well is really important. What you put into your mouth is really, really important. Just calling the pills that I used to take a drug, everything that I put in my mouth changes my body, not just those pills I would take. So how much coffee you drink, how much alcohol you drink, how much sugar you eat, you know, what you put into your body will change how you feel. And I guess the, the last thing would be, you know, we, we have control over how, whereas humans, if, we, if our brains are healthy, we have control over how we choose to see the world if our brains are healthy. Mm. For a long time, mine wasn't. And sometimes it takes a lot of work, but we can choose how we go about our day. We can choose the purpose that we do something. Like, oh my God, I've got to take the kids to school. Well, I get to take the kids to school. Mm. Yeah, it's traffic, it's rainy, I'm going to be late for work, but I get to be there. How many days am I ever going to drop this little girl to school? Probably maybe another 400, and then that's it. I'll never do it again. So how can I be in this moment yes i'll be late for my meeting or yes i'll be whatever and yes she's just on her phone but i get to be here for her okay all right we can change our perception of a situation if we're healthy um yeah going about your day with purpose is uh, really important and those 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 things i find are the things that really kind of guide my day and and if you were to feel like you were sliding in your day and you're sort of creeping up your uh, the scale i call it like yeah. at a zero to ten and i'm yeah. like where am i right now if you're like, oh, there's an eight and there's a nine coming, what what would be the thing that you do to circuit break? Oh boy, if I'm if I'm at eight or nine, I'm I'm already at the doctor, mate. Okay. <laughs> if I'm anywhere near ten, there's no hell, no hell, no. If I get anywhere near above five, I'm uh, I'm going to go see a doctor. Uh, no doctor, way. do you mean GP, psychiatrist, psychologist? Oh, I'd go see my psychiatrist. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Okay. If I get anywhere near that again, because I, I I do not want to get into that dangerous situation that I okay. was was before. Um, I I start by checking in with my wife. I just let her know, look. I'm just going to say it out loud, um, but just to let you know where I am, this, 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 I know this, this, this and true, but currently I'm just kind of battling with what's going on. Um, I get my writing done. I, uh, I usually, I try to write out uh, 20 things I'm grateful for, okay. um, which is scientifically, scientifically proven to change your mood. Um, and then I try and process a lot of the fear just writing and yeah, that I seems that to a lot as well. really help. Yep. Um, but yeah, I, um, and then I'll just go and lift some weights yep. to be honest yeah cool <laughs> and then try and connect with people try and try and call someone see if somebody else needs help try and check in with one of my brothers check in with a friend check in just ask if people are doing okay because getting out of my head um, is really powerful and for someone who um, is going through a hard time right now and they're either at a stage where they haven't yet seeked help um uh, or they're at a stage where they've been through a bunch of stuff and they want to share their story to help someone else, but they don't know how. Um, what advice would you give to them? Uh, it starts with going to your GP. Go to your damn doctor. Yeah. Just life's too short not to. Because the thing that is fundamental for people to understand is that if you've been through any kind of trauma as a kid uh, or any kind of trauma at all, and, and that could be, you know, what, whatever it is, um, it fundamentally alters your genes. It changes your DNA. It switches genes on and off, okay? And those genetic shifts are different 
make you now different from how you were when you were born. But what happens then is that genetic code will then get passed on to your kids. So if you have had any kind of trauma, if you have any kind of any kind of difficulty, any kind of like you just get it, not just for you, but get it done. Because mm. otherwise the energy of say something, you know, you had a, some horrible violence happen to you in some way. Um, why let that act of violence be passed on to a kid that had nothing to do with it? Get on it. Take some control. Take some action. Take, take, that some action. B- take that control back to you. I have a billion more questions, but I'm going to let you go. Uh, mate, thank you so much. No worries, brother. It's been Thanks. awesome. Thanks for having me, man.